We have two scripture readings this morning. The first is from the book of Acts. And I would heartily invite you to follow along in your few Bibles, starting on page 1690. The word of the Lord this morning comes from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand there looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And our second reading this morning is from Paul's letter to the Colossians, and that's on page 1834. We'll read chapter 3, verse 1 to 4. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. So as I understand it, this is the third sermon on the Ascension that you guys have heard in the past few months. I think Pastor John preached one in the morning, Pastor Amanda preached one in the evening, and I guess it's a mainstay of Christian theology that good things come in threes. So here's number three. It's actually probably a bit surprising that you're hearing three sermons on the Ascension, because these days the Ascension doesn't really seem to have a whole lot of theological church calendar kind of significance. It used to, 
But I suspect for most of us, Father's Day is a bigger deal than Ascension Day. If doctrines were celebrities, this wouldn't even make the A-list. This is not the George Clooney of doctrines, like the Resurrection or, or, or Pentecost, even. But it should be. The Heidelberg Catechism certainly treats it as such. The Catechism actually spends just a little bit of time on the Resurrection. But on the Ascension, there's four questions and four answers. And there's a lot of like really heavy, deep theology included in, there, in those questions and answers. But since we've been over the Ascension a few times as of late, I'm interested in just the tail end of one of those questions. The last part of question 49. By the Spirit's power we seek not earthly things, but the things above, where Christ is, sitting at God's right hand. The Ascension can seem like such a, a lofty thing, for, for obvious reasons. And I'm wondering if one of the reasons why we've kind of downgraded it a little bit in, in terms of our practice is because maybe it seems like there's a, a disconnect. That we feel maybe a little left behind when we think about the Ascension. When we think about Jesus flying up to heaven. And we wonder, what earthly good is the Ascension? We wonder, what do we get to do how do we get to live now that we have an ascended Lord? I don't think we're the only ones who've asked those questions or who've thought about it that way. I'm going to assume the crowd of disciples that were gathered around Jesus, the one that Luke tells us about in our reading from Acts, I imagine they had their own questions too. I mean, first they had to get used to the idea of following this man from Nazareth around the countryside as he did all sorts of miraculous things. And then they had to cope with this guy being arrested and then killed. But then, okay, he's back, and they're relieved. But now this, like barely six weeks later, after all of that, 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 all that emotional stuff, barely six weeks later, around a meal, around another kingdom conversation, Jesus is lifted off the ground, and he goes up and up, and up, until a cloud hides him from view. How did he rise? Did he take a leap? Did he just start hovering for a little bit? Did he pick up speed as he went? Did he break the sound barrier? These are probably the kind of questions the disciples were thinking about as he stared up into the clouds. But maybe those details don't matter so much. But it must have been a spectacle, right? Unlike anything the disciples had ever seen. And I totally get why they were standing there gawking off into the sky. And that's why the angels' words to them, the men in white who joined them all of a sudden, that's why those angels' words seem really strange. The angels ask, Men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking in the sky? The same Jesus, the one that you've seen taken into heaven, will come back in the same way. It's as if the angels are saying, well, that was amazing, wasn't it? But don't you have something to do now? Right here? Right now? Right here on this earth? This soil? That promised spirit is coming. And you're going to be empowered for all sorts of earthly good. So your job isn't to gaze at the clouds. 
Your job isn't to try and peer into heaven. You need to get to work down here. I think it's really interesting how the angels draw the disciples' attention back down to earth. And it's really interesting how those words from the angels kind of rub up against Paul's words in Colossians. And, and the way those words are echoed in the Catechism. They're not exactly contradictory, but there's a little bit of tension between what the angels say and what Paul says. For Paul, it's don't seek those earthly things, but the things above, in heaven, where Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. But for the angels, it's don't keep gazing up at the clouds. Don't keep trying to peer into heaven, but get to work down here. I think in that tension right there, the instruction to look around, the instruction to have your mind on heavenly things, in that tension right there, that little knot, that's the central calling of the Christian life. To somehow be heavenly-minded while living here on earth. To somehow work and live and move among earthly things without forgetting who is sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And I think that can be tricky. I think there's a little bit of a balancing act that has to happen here. And it might be tempting, it might be easy, to teeter over to one side or the other. Too much emphasis on heaven, or too much emphasis on earth. Hard to find that balance. On the one hand, it's really tempting to be too focused on the things of heaven. So that it becomes a distraction from the life that we're called to live here. There's that old cliche, right? So heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. So some of us long for heaven in a way that forsakes the goodness of the earth. It's an I'll fly away, oh glory one bright morning kind of theology. So we start to treat life as if, nothing, as, it, as if it's nothing but practice for the next one. Or we start to treat life as some kind of trial, something to be endured so you can gain that future spiritual glory. We treat life as this veil of tears, of toil and sweat and blood, and we long for that sparkling spiritual existence in heaven, out of earshot from all the turmoil down below here. Some of us start to treat life like a test, as a place to prove ourselves worthy of heaven. Some Christians seem to want to watch the world burn, but only because they think they'll be raptured above the fray to their front row box seats in the heavens. And to do all that, that's to forsake the good creation that we call home. A wounded creation, to be sure. Full of turmoil, full of struggle, but a good creation nonetheless. But that side of the scale, that excessive heavenly side of the scale, that's got a long tradition in some Christian traditions, but I'm not sure that that's a Christian reformed problem. I'm not sure that's the one that afflicts us the most. We tend to be 
not the so long to the late great planet Earth type of people. That's not where the struggle lies for most of us. I say that our biggest challenge lies in the ditch on the other side. I think our temptation is found in the earthy, earthly stuff. Some of us are pushing a big wheelbarrow full of a load of affluence and possessions, struggling to keep it upright, struggling to keep moving forward because of all the things that weigh us down. Some of us are obsessed with the sensual. We've had our heads turned by forbidden fruit and by poison apples, by sex and addictions, and always needing to have the best. Some of us have come to the realization that the things of this earth are fleeting. And so we live for the moment. We store up treasures on earth. And then we start to, start to worry when moths and rust start to creep in. Some of us are so earthly that we love to throw mud. If there's an opportunity for a quarrel or an argument or for some nitpicking, we get right in it, like hogs jostling in the muck. Others of us are buried deep under mounds of depression, digging deep pits of anxiety, plowing deep furrows into our brows with worry. It's really easy to feel tethered to the things of this earth. It's really easy to be weighed down by them, the muck and the mud. They don't clear up so easily. And when you're stuck on the earth, all you see is this shrunken horizon off in the distance. And I can seem like that's all there is. That's a vista that's so limited compared to the one we behold when we have heaven in mind. So if that's us, if that's us looking at that shrunken horizon, feeling stuck down here on earth, then Paul's words in Colossians, they come to us with a pretty daring call. Lift up your hearts. Gaze on this new horizon the things of heaven, where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus' ascension can challenge both of those extremes, both of those temptations. And that's because Jesus' ascension is about bringing things together, not setting them apart. This is why it's so important to remember that Jesus ascended bodily, in the flesh, to sit at the right hand of the Father, to literally sit at the right hand of the Father. This isn't a, a spiritual ascension. This is not a, an escape plan from earth, the, an escape plan from the fleshy, from, from the human. Jesus didn't come to slum with us for 33 years and then slip out of his skin and return to the Father in that splendor of that spiritual heaven. Jesus came here. He descended to elevate us all, to gather us up, to bring us, not just our spirit, not just our soul, but us, our very humanity, the flesh, and unite it 
with him in heaven. Paul tells us that we have been raised with Christ and that our very life is hidden with him in his life, his indelible, perfected resurrection body sitting at the right hand of the Father. That means that the terms of the deal have changed. Jesus' ascension to the throne of the Father is not a return to business as it was before before Jesus was born. The old divide between heaven and earth has been crossed. The gap between them has been brought together. The space between God and humanity has been bridged. The things of earth have become the things of heaven. Not totally yet. Not in their fullest realization yet. But the move has been made. The connection has been made. The astonishing fact of the ascension is not that the Son of God reigns. The Son of God has always reigned from all eternity. The astonishing thing about the ascension is that the Son of God in human flesh, in human nature, has been elevated to the throne of God. In Ephesians, Paul writes that God has raised us all up with Christ and we're seated alongside him in the heavenly realm. According to the church fathers, this astonishes the angels. That human nature, that human flesh, sits up on high with the Father. These things have been brought together. Heaven and earth, human and divine. The ascension is the beginning of a new creation. We're not left behind. We get to participate. Our very nature, our earthy, fleshy body has been elevated, and we get to work alongside our ascended Lord. And so the preacher, Scott Jose, says that the ascension is the organizing principle around which we orient our life. It's the lens through which we see the world and by which we make sense of the world. I love that. And I want to see that that's true. I mean, all this talk of, of elevated human nature, of, of human flesh joined in, with heaven, of sitting alongside Christ in heaven, that just sounds so wonderful and heavenly and rapturous. But I don't know if it will sound that way tomorrow morning. I don't know if it'll sound that way when you sleep through your alarm and you spin out of bed and you plant your feet firmly on the earth and you scramble to get some coffee made and pull a comb across your head so that you can get to work on time for that job that you don't even like. It's not so easy to see this. You don't always have the vision. You don't always recognize it, that earth and heaven are close together. I guess that's why the Catechism points out that it's a gift of the Spirit to be able to keep your mind on heavenly things. If we try on our own, there's a good chance that we'll just tumble back to earth. But the Spirit does give us vision. The Spirit does help us see these things. 
I think we all can see these things, even if Monday morning brings grumbling, and boredom, and annoyance. The writer Kathleen Norris, one of my favorite writers, tells a story about the first time she went to Catholic Mass. It was her first time there, and the entire service was mysterious to her. She didn't really understand all of the, the call and response of the liturgy. Everyone else seemed to have it memorized, and she didn't know what to say. And she was a little uh, bemused by the pageantry of, of it all. The incense and the candles and the parade. But it clicked for her at one moment. There was one moment in the Mass where it all made sense. It was right after the congregation celebrated communion. The priest stood there at the altar in his fancy robes. And he started cleaning up. Kathleen Norris says she grabbed her husband's arm and said, the priest is doing the dishes. The priest is doing the dishes. She said that it was enormously comforting to see that. To see this priest, overdressed for the occasion, in his fancy robes, puttering about the altar, cleaning up after having served such a great meal. She says it welcomed her as a stranger who didn't know the movements of the Mass. But she understood eating and drinking, and she understood cleaning up afterwards. That strikes me as a scene that is viewed with an ascension imagination. It strikes me as a scene that makes sense from an ascension point of view. A man doing the dishes. Such an earthly thing, but so full of heavenly significance. And sure, it's a, it's a scene from worship. It's really easy to find, or it's easier anyways, to find these connection points between earth and heaven in worship. Easier than finding them in our day-to-day -day life. But I think it's possible. And if we take something like our, our work, our vocation, which we spend a lot more time doing than we do in church, I think we can find these connection points. I think the Spirit can show us these connection points. One of my colleagues points out the ways in which day-to-day -day work can be an image, can, can represent the life of our ascended king. He says, an accountant can reveal God's bottom line and reconciling heart. He says, a geophysicist can show God's ancient and unseen ways. He says, a firefighter reflects God's risk-taking, God's urgent passion to save, even if it costs him his own life. A forensic psychologist can show how the spirit convicts of sin. Just the same, I think, a house cleaner shows the rituals and the discipline it takes to make sure that grime doesn't build up and stain everything. A winemaker, even if that's just a hobby, a winemaker knows a lot about dead things that come back to life in new, potent ways. A parent knows something and shows something of the nature of a good shepherd, guiding and protecting those who are so easily led astray. The connection is there. 
The good news of the ascension is that heaven and earth are a lot closer than we think. And the Spirit can give us vision even in the ordinary, earthly, mundane, day-to-day -day things to see how that works. And I think that's good news because I think so many Christians have no idea that what they do all week matters to God. I think so many Christians have a hard time thinking about that, that what they do day in, day out has some heavenly significance. That it might point to something beyond just this earthly realm. That what they do actually might be an image of what our ascended Lord does. That it might in some small, some mysterious way serve to bring in the kingdom that our Lord promises. We need to see that. We need to see those connections because if our understanding of, of heaven and earth is formed only by an hour on Sunday morning, then we're going to be hopelessly lost for the other 167 hours of the rest of the week. We need to pray urgently for the Spirit to show us the connection that we talk about between heaven and earth when we, when we think of the ascension. Our earthly imaginations can be so limited. The horizon can be so small. Like we're stuck in a valley and we can only see a bit of the sunrise. But through his ascension, our Lord has called us to something much grander than that. Much higher than any mountaintop vista. All the way up to where he sits. So, my sisters and brothers, let us keep our minds, keep our hearts on the things above, where Jesus sits, even though our feet are firmly planted on earth. May the Spirit of God come to us in power, making us witnesses to the glory of our ascended King in everything we do. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our glorious ascended King, we confess that we have such limited imagination, that we have such limited vision, that we can't always see the connection that you have made between the things of heaven and the things of earth. We can feel left behind. We can feel stuck down here. But you promised that your spirit would come. That by the power of your spirit, we can keep our minds and our hearts on the things of heaven. We pray earnestly that your spirit will be here, not just on Sunday morning, but starting on Monday morning, and all the way through the week, and all the things we do. Give us vision to see that you reign on high, and that you draw us up to that throne. In Christ's name, amen.